Welcome back to Rock Band's podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Malaberti. I know, I know it's been a bit of a break, uh, but this is the second to last episode of the entire Beatles series. Next episode is going to be the finale. Uh, If you're following me on Instagram, you'll know that next season is going to be about the Rolling Stones, which I'm so excited to release. And when that comes out, we'll finally be back to the weekly episodes. Uh, Thank you all so much for the support. If you haven't followed us yet on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, please do that. Write a review if you like the show. Follow us on Instagram at Rock Bands Podcast and share us with all of your rock and roll loving friends. All right. I've kept you waiting long enough, so here we go. Solo Beatles Part 5. George Harrison's reputation really took a hit after the 1974 Dark Horse tour and studio album. The rock press seemed to really enjoy tearing George down after he had achieved some pretty unexpected success in the early 1970s. This was at a time when George's personal and professional life uh, were pretty hectic. His marriage to Patty Boyd had ended after she left him for one of his best friends, Eric Clapton, and he was a pretty serious user of cocaine. Professionally, he was still dealing with all the Apple business, and at the same time, he started his own record label, Dark Horse Records. The biggest stress in George's life, though, was the ongoing plagiarism lawsuit over his 1970 hit, My Sweet Lord, which I'll get into later in the episode. Not everything for George was bad, though. He had just met Olivia Arias, who he would later marry, uh, and the two had already moved in together. And despite the press, George was still having a pretty good time making music. Pretty much immediately after the Dark Horse endeavor, George was writing and recording again, and planning to release his follow-up record, Extra Texture, Read All About It. George was excited about the project, and he felt that he could prove the critics wrong, and show them that he still had it. The Extra Texture sessions took place solely in Los Angeles in the spring and summer of 1975, and George would find, like John Lennon, that the LA lifestyle was having a big influence on his music. Bassist Klaus Vorman said of George's behavior in this period, quote, It was a terrible time, because I think there was a lot of cocaine going around, and that's when I realized that it was the whole Hollywood thing. The problem was that if you wanted to stay in that scene, you had to hang out with those people and go out and do the clubs. George was in it too far at the time, unquote. The musical result was pretty evident. Extra Texture is sort of a work of plastic soul, emphasis on plastic, kind of like what David Bowie, The Stones, and John Lennon were experimenting with at this time. The first song on the album, originally recorded in the early 1970s for All Things Must Pass, is genuinely great, though, simply titled You. You is an upbeat, horn-driven song with a great guitar riff and a catchy chorus. Critics and fans alike loved You, which was released as a single before the rest of the album came out, and it signaled a return to the George Harrison that everyone loved. Melody Maker said, quote, You is a dead cert disco smash, his finest since My Sweet Lord, unquote. Headlines were buzzing with Harrison's return to form and George bounces back. Even Rolling Stone magazine, which hadn't been giving George an easy time, said, quote, You is not only the best thing that he has done since 1971's My Sweet Lord, but also promises some of the prestige and credibility he lost with last year's Sour Voice Dark Horse and Fizzle Tour, unquote. New Musical Express said, quote, You deserves to be a hit, and it will be, unquote. 
Sure enough, You was successful. It was a much-needed top 20 hit in the U.S. and a top 40 hit in the U.K. for George Harrison. Because of You's success, there was a lot of anticipation for Extra Texture, but fans were quickly very disappointed. You opens up the album, and honestly, it couldn't be a more misleading album opener. The rest of the album is just the opposite from this song. It's unrelentingly depressing and slow. The other somewhat upbeat song is a six-minute throwaway called His Name is Legs, but other than that, it's all just really slow, sad music. The album is so sad and so dark and dim that Harrison even put 30 seconds of You in the middle of the album and titled it A Bit More of You just to give the album some energy, just to jolt the listener halfway through. The album has some highlights, though. I like This Guitar Can't Keep From Crying, which is a reflection on Rolling Stone magazine's treatment of him, but it kind of feels like a watered-down While My Guitar Gently Weeps. I also like Can't Stop Thinking About You, which was actually co-written with Joe Cocker, but other than that, much of this album falls flat. The initial anticipation felt by critics and fans turned into scorn and indifference, and the release just 10 months after Dark Horse badly hurt Harrison's career when he really needed a strong album. For years now, there had been something boiling away in the background of George Harrison's career. His biggest solo hit, My Sweet Lord, found itself under intense scrutiny for its similarities to the 1963 Chiffon's hit, He's So Fine. In February of 1971, George Harrison was sued by Bright Tunes, the publishing company who owned the Chiffon's catalog, in a copyright lawsuit. Alan Klein, still firmly the Beatles' Mr. Fix-It at the time, tried to get rid of the lawsuit entirely by just buying all of Bright Tunes' catalog. But this strategy failed, and the lawsuit kept chugging along. By 1976, about six years after the lawsuit had been filed, the suit went to court, which was one of the most demeaning and unpleasant experiences of George's musical career. A few days of testimony would have George Harrison in the courtroom with his guitar, explaining to the judge how he wrote the song uh, before the judge finally ruled that My Sweet Lord was indeed a copyright infringement on the chiffon song He's So Fine. While George composed an original melody for his slide guitar riff and solo, the judge stated, quote, the two songs are virtually identical, unquote. Negotiations and lawsuits would go on to determine how much of the song's royalties Harrison had to pay. Biographer Graham Thompson stated, quote, It was a thoroughly demeaning and demoralizing affair for Harrison. Observing his biggest solo hit, a song written in the spirit of love and intended only to praise, being stripped down to its prosaic nuts and bolts by lawyers and ethnomusicologists, unquote. George was very upset by the lawsuit. He even said, quote, It was the worst experience of my life taking my guitar into court trying to explain how I write a song, unquote. George also said a few years later, quote, It's difficult to just start writing again after you've been through that. Even now when I put the radio on, every tune I hear sounds like something else, unquote. George never really accepted the notion that he plagiarized He's So Fine, but the songs are truly almost identical. George famously asked himself, quote, 
Why didn't I realize, unquote, after the release of My Sweet Lord, but more than a few accounts indicate that George and the others around at the time actually were aware of the similarities. Delaney Bramlett remembers strumming the melody of He's So Fine with George and later hearing the same melody on the single. And Bobby Whitlock remembers having a conversation about He's So Fine and the similarities in the control room of the recording studio. Whitlock said, quote, when we recorded it, I was standing in the control room afterwards, and I started singing along. He's so fine. Wish he was mine. I said, that's he's so fine, unquote. Moreover, Phil Spector, who produced All Things Must Pass and, of course, My Sweet Lord, actually produced He's So Fine in 1963. Now, maybe George didn't realize that uh, he, He's So Fine and My Sweet Lord had a lot of similarities, but what biographer Graham Thompson thinks is the most realistic explanation is that George probably realized halfway through writing the song that it was pretty much the same song, and he just thought that he could get away with it if he added a slide guitar part over it. I think that's kind of the most likely explanation, too. George did have something of a reputation in this area. Beatles producer George Martin later said, quote, an awful lot of George's songs do sound like something else, unquote. If you all remember, George actually lifted the opening line of his song Something from James Taylor's Something in the Way She Moves. And similarities have been found between songs like Miss Odell and Lon Van Eaton's Without the Lord. Every song, I think, that any songwriter writes comes from something from somewhere, whether it's a riff, a melody, a style, or a vibe. And George Harrison is still one of pop music's greatest songwriters, undoubtedly, but maybe sometimes George was a little liberal when he drew the line between inspiration and composition. Extra texture did not land as George thought it would. And facing the embarrassment of the plagiarism lawsuit, George would start to hide from the public eye, becoming more and more reclusive and releasing less and less music, essentially turning his back on 1970s rock and roll stardom. After the success of Ringo's 1973 album Ringo, which had given him three hit singles, Starr had some unusually high expectations for his next release. He began sessions for what would become Goodnight Vienna in the summer of 1974. Different from his previous album, only John Lennon, who was in L.A. during his lost weekend, contributed to Goodnight Vienna. He wrote the title track, It's All Down to Goodnight Vienna. Now, Goodnight Vienna is an expression meaning it's all over or the end, it's the end, kind of a prediction. Uh, of Starr's pop career at this point. Um, Lennon plays some piano on the song, and it's actually a relatively strong song overall, pretty catchy. The other two Beatles were absent from these sessions. Ringo and George weren't really speaking because of Harrison's affair with his wife, Maureen Starkey. The sessions were no less star-studded, though. Elton John contributed a very Elton-y song, Snookeroo, and adds the piano part. The album is almost entirely covers, with Starr only writing one of the songs, and other mu uh, musicians like Harry Nilsson, Robbie Robertson, Billy Preston, Nicky Hopkins, contributed heavy to the album's sound. The album's only hit was the No-No song, which is kind of a silly song about drugs. It was a number one in Canada and a number three in uh, the United States, giving Ringo another commercial success. The album sold well enough, but it was definitely Ringo's last release as kind of a relevant pop artist. I mean, even this description is sort of a stretch. Unfortunately, Ringo had gained a reputation as kind of a partier. He was completely taken in by the rock and roll lifestyle. 
He was particularly fond of alcohol and cocaine. He and his wife, Maureen Starkey, separated and then divorced in the mid-1970s, and that caused his behavior only to spiral. His closest friends were The Who's drummer Keith Moon and singer-songwriter Harry Nilsson. I mean, these guys were known to be the biggest alcoholics in rock and roll, and Ringo could proudly match them drink for drink. Ringo later remembered this period saying, quote, We weren't just musicians dabbling in drugs and alcohol. We were junkies dabbling in music, unquote. Ringo's career spiraled. He was taking these lame acting roles. He was often found, you know, described in the tabloids for some crazy drunken antic rather than his creative output. Sadly, Ringo released a string of pretty terrible albums throughout the rest of the 1970s. Paul's career was kind of taking the opposite trajectory. John and George's life were sort of filled with scandal, rock and roll, excess, and drama, but Paul's was much more stable, and after the release of the hugely successful Band on the Run album, he reestablished himself as a creative giant. Paul took 1974 largely to himself, traveling a bit, but spending most of his time among his farm animals, dogs, kids, and his wife, Linda. He didn't really release a lot of music during this period. He did have one huge hit in 1974, the single Junior's Farm, which kept Wing's momentum going between albums. And in a lot of ways, Junior's Farm kind of telegraphed where Paul was going thematically with his next album. In 1975, both Paul and Jeff Emmerich won Grammys for their work on Band on the Run. And a few days later, Paul's good press was sort of interrupted when he and his wife Linda were pulled over in Los Angeles and arrested for possession of marijuana. This was Paul's third drug bust in just a few years. Drug busts and Grammys aside, though, Paul got to work in 1975 on his next album, Venus and Mars. Venus and Mars was recorded with a new lineup for Wings. Denny Lane stayed on, and Jimmy McCulloch joined Wings as a lead guitar player. This album was recorded all over the place. Uh, They did some sessions in Nashville, some in New Orleans, some in England and L.A., and so on. It was also a very unusual album. It was definitely inspired by glam elements, a bit of Bowie influence. Bowie was huge in the mid-70s. Some hard rock like Led Zeppelin and The Who. But the album is as unique as it is unusual. It was conceptual. A lot of songs are connected lyrically and musically, and the beginnings and endings are kind of blurred, kind of like the Abbey Road medley. Uh, Venus and Mars was a surprising commercial hit, topping the charts in both the United Kingdom and the United States. It also contains one of Paul's biggest hits to date, Listen to What the Man Said, which went to the top of the charts in the United States. What Venus and Mars was most notable for, however, was the huge stadium tour that it inspired. After its release, Wings went on a huge tour of the world, playing in the UK, Australia, Canada, and notably the United States, which Paul hadn't played since the Beatles played Candlestick Park in 1966. The tour established Paul as a staple of live music in the 1970s, where he was one of the first acts to start playing these gigantic stadiums. I mean, it was early days. The only people doing it were Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, the Rolling Stones. But I mean, now everyone. This was part of the primitive sort of stadium shows uh, in, in the mid-1970s that would become so ubiquitous. The tour was so successful partly because Paul swallowed his pride and gave the fans what they wanted. He no longer abstained from playing Beatles songs. Instead, Paul really embraced all of his music, and he played songs like Lady Madonna, Yesterday, The Long and Winding Road, though he did stop short of some of those classic Lennon-McCartney collaborations. 
Ringo Starr even joined Paul on stage in Los Angeles and handed the Wings lead singer a bouquet of flowers. The tour was a huge success. Like I said, in America alone, Paul played in front of over half a million people, and he released a really successful live album in the wake of it. One wonders about George Harrison's touring career, and had he just played a few more Beatles songs and looked into the past a little more fondly, if he could have had a completely different career trajectory. This was a really new and important phase in Paul McCartney's career. He went on to become one of the most consistent touring acts in rock and roll, and he also established himself as the prime guardian of the Beatles' reputation. Paul is still playing today. I mean, he still plays Beatles songs at his concerts, wing songs, solo songs, and he doesn't really show any sign of stopping. After over a year of partying in Los Angeles with Ringo and Harry Nielsen, John Lennon was down and out. He was separated from his wife Yoko and living with his new girlfriend May Pang. And on top of his new habit of binge drinking, John was still struggling with the Beatle business, his immigration battle, and so on. Professionally, his partying was really getting in the way of his work. He had to shelf uh, the album Oldies and Moldies, his cover album, because it was such a drunken mess, and his most recent work, producing Harry Nilsson's album Pussycats, became more notable for its excess than its music. By mid-1974, John was feeling more lost than at any point during his lost weekend. Lennon later remembered his stresses and drinking during this period, saying, quote, With my personal life and the Apple business and the Klein business and the immigration business, you don't want to admit it while it's happening, that it's what's making you go barmy. You're still living every day, and you think you're just going to a party. Then you end up throwing up in the toilet. I just woke up in the middle of it and thought, there's something wrong here. I'd better straighten myself out, unquote. John decided that the best way to do this was to leave Los Angeles, which had become a cesspool of misbehavior. So he and May Pang decided that they'd go back to New York City, in New York in 1974, John started to see old friends, even family. His ex-wife, Cynthia, even contacted John and asked if she could bring Julian, who was now 11, to New York to visit him. And to her surprise, John agreed. John hadn't seen his son in two years, and as part of his straightening out, as well as May Pang pushing him, he wanted to be a better father to Julian. It was also the first time that John would see Cynthia since they had split in 1968. The trip actually went pretty well, and John, Cynthia, May, and Julian actually all went to Disneyland together. Julian loved the experience so much that he asked his dad to bring him back three times, and he did. John also started hanging out with old friends like Rolling Stone singer Mick Jagger, who he'd grown quite distant from since the 1960s. Jagger said of this period, quote, I didn't really see John that much until he separated from Yoko. We got really friendly again, more friendly than we'd ever been, unquote. John also developed close friendships with David Bowie, who he and Jagger both really admired. Uh, John and Bowie even co-wrote some songs, like Fame, and Bowie recorded a cover of John's Across the Universe, both of which were released on Bowie's 1975 Young Americans album. John even started hanging out with Paul again, who was often in New York. John also was in the same city as Yoko Ono, of course, but Yoko still refused to see John. Even though they still called each other several times a day, May Pang remembers during this period John was much more stable than he had been in the six months prior, and he 
began to be quite annoyed at Yoko's constant uh, monitoring of him during this period. Pang said, quote, It seemed that John had really made up his mind to run away from Yoko. She would telephone him, and in a rage, John would say, I'm not talking to that woman, unquote. While he was back in New York, John decided to start his next project in the summer of 1974, a studio album that would become Walls and Bridges. He knew the making of this album had to be a little more professional and disciplined than Oldies and Moldies, and the results showed this. John formed a lineup he had become accustomed to playing with. Klaus Vorman on bass, Jesse Ed Davis on guitar, Jim Keltner on drums. John made it clear that the sessions were to be taken seriously. No more heavy drinking in the studio, and when they were there, they were working. Jimmy Iovine, uh, who was an only an engineer at the time, now he's a huge record executive, said that Walls and Bridges were, quote, the most professional sessions I have still been on. John knew what he wanted. He knew how to get what he was going for, and he was going after a noise, and he knew how to get it, unquote. The lyrics on Walls and Bridges are some of the best that John had written since Imagine, and the lyrics are oftentimes autobiographical, specifically reflecting on John's lost weekend. The album opens up with Going Down on Love, which right off the bat is a reflection on John's decision to follow pleasure when he broke things off with Yoko. His feelings for Yoko, though, are a huge part of this album, arguably the most common theme. In Bless You and What You Got, John is specifically singing about his sorrow over his separation from Yoko. Even singing You Don't Know What You Got Until You Lose It in What You Got and Bless You Wherever You Are in Bless You. In Nobody Loves You When You're Down and Out, which is my personal favorite, John reflects on his fame and fortune as a Beatle, his lost weekend, even his plagiarism case for Come Together. He's most pointedly writing about fame and show business, though, and he even eerily sings Everybody Loves You When You're Six Foot in the Ground. In another highlight, John's stealing glass harnesses that anger he had during the How Do You Sleep period in 1971, but this time it seems it's pointed not at Paul McCartney, but at Alan Klein. Though Lennon later denied this interpretation and said that the song, like most of his songs, were about himself. Walls and Bridges had two hits on it. Number Nine Dream is one of John's best songs with a great guitar part played by Jesse Ed Davis. The lyrics are whimsical. They're about a dream John had. And May Pang actually whispers John in the song while John is singing Somebody Call Out My Name. The second hit would end up being John's first and only number one solo single during his lifetime, Whatever Gets You Through the Night. John actually had help on the song from his new friend Elton John who was one of the biggest superstars of the 1970s, picking up where the Beatles had left off. Elton was a huge fan of John Lennon, and when John asked him to do a background vocal on Whatever Gets You Through the Night, he was thrilled. He wanted to show the ex-Beatle just how good of an impression he could do of him. Elton was also uh, a pretty big fan of the song itself. He believed that Whatever Gets You Through the Night had serious hit potential, and he pressured John to release it as the album's lead single, thinking it could be a number one. John really didn't take Elton seriously. He, he didn't think that a song as simple as this one could top the charts. I mean, he had written masterpieces like Imagine and Mind Games, which didn't even claim the top spot. But Elton was positive. John Lennon and Elton disagreed so strongly on whether or not this song had hit potential that they made a bet. If Whatever Gets You Through the Night became a number one single in America, John would break his hiatus from playing live and join Elton John on stage to perform the song at Madison Square Garden. John accepted, never thinking that the song would be a hit, but 
Sure enough, whatever got, gets you through the night topped the charts in America in November, becoming John's first hit single since the Beatles in, broke up in 1969. John was the last Beatle, funnily enough, to gain a number one single. I mean, Paul, George, and Ringo all had a couple number ones under their belts, and which is really crazy because John was the guy who co-wrote songs like Eight Days a Week, I Want to Hold Your Hand, All You Need Is Love. True to his word, though, John Lennon showed up to Madison Square Garden on November 28, 1974, about a week after the single hit number one. Elton was on tour, and he didn't notify the public about what was about to occur, but there were rumors, and the garden was filled with rock stars and high-profile people. Backstage, John was so nervous that he was throwing up in the bathroom. He received flowers from Yoko Ono, wishing him luck, to which he replied, quote, thank goodness Yoko's not here, unquote. He was wrong. Yoko was in the audience, and she gave explicit instructions to the staff not to inform John of her presence. John waited impatiently backstage, even trying to leave more than once. Towards the end of the show, Elton John told the audience, quote, Seeing as it's Thanksgiving, we thought we'd make tonight a little bit of a joyous occasion by inviting someone up with us onto stage. And I'm sure he'll be no stranger to anybody in the audience when I say it's our great privilege, and your great privilege, to see and hear Mr. John Lennon, unquote. The audience roared as John Lennon nervously ran onto stage in a black suit, round sunglasses, and a Fender Telecaster. Elton's count jolted the band into whatever gets you through the night, before playing an Elton version of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, which Elton said was one of the best songs ever written, unquote. After Lucy, the crowd was ecstatic. John then talked to the audience for the first time directly, thanked the band and said, quote, We're trying to think of a number to finish up with so I can get out of here and be sick. And we thought we'd do a number of an old estranged fiancé of mine called Paul, unquote. John and Elton then shocked the crowd even more when they started playing Paul's I Saw Her Standing There, one of the Beatles' first ever hits back in 1963. Obviously, this was a historic performance, and everyone in the audience that night knew it. But nobody knew, neither John, Elton, nor the audience, what they were actually seeing. That night, November 28, 1974, at Madison Square Garden, John Lennon played music in front of an audience for the final time of his life. Backstage, John's relief was palpable. He was drinking and laughing and having a good time, hugging Elton and the band. And to John's surprise, he had a visitor backstage, Yoko Ono. Yoko was with David Spinoza and John was with May Pang. The two hadn't seen each other in a year, despite being in near constant contact. They sat and talked for a while, but the two of them had pretty different ideas of what that night meant. Yoko said, quote, Backstage at the Elton show, John was acting like he wanted to eat me up or something. But I said, oh, please don't start this again. I really didn't want to come back together so much because I thought it would be the same thing all over again. The entourage, people being so jealous, whispering to him, and the wor whole world hating me, unquote. Little by little, though, in New York, John and Yoko began to see each other again. John would always make up excuses to visit her at the Dakota. One day when John was allegedly stopping by to ask Yoko for some advice on how to quit smoking, the couple finally reunited. Yoko remembers this mo moment saying, quote, We were in our bedroom and John said, So I really burnt the bridge, right? You won't let me come back? And it was said in such a sad way that I said, Okay, you can come back. 
I was thinking to myself, what am I saying? But I couldn't help it, unquote. At last, in early 1975, John and Yoko were back together again. And John's lost weekend was finally over. Thank you so much for listening to Rock Band's podcast. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, uh, on Instagram at Rock Band's Podcast, and share us with all of your rock and roll loving friends. Next week is the finale, so stay tuned for that. See you then. Thank you.